you are listening to a quick preamble to episode 61, uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to try and sell you something. Uh, we're not going down that route. Um, as regular listeners know, it normally takes us a couple of days to get the podcast edited and uploaded after we've finished a recording. Uh, and on this occasion, the WSL has made a fairly big announcement the day after we recorded. They have said that going forwards from the 2019 season onwards, male and female athletes will receive equal prize money at any WSL sanctioned event, uh, which is huge, huge news for the industry. It's probably one of the biggest uh, announcements within the surf industry in, in, in quite a few years. I wanted to do this little preamble for two reasons. The first is, as you will hear, uh, we talk about uh, equality and inequality within the surf industry on a couple of occasions over the episode. So this news coming out was super, super relevant. Uh, the second reason is that we are going on a little bit of a break. Uh, the resort here in Costa Rica is going to be closed for a few weeks, and it's going to be a little while before we can all sit down and discuss this news in detail. But uh, I have pre-recorded a couple of episodes, so I've got some interviews that I've been saving up for you guys knowing that we were going on this break. So I didn't want you guys to think that we were just ignoring it uh, episode on episode on episode. So this is just a, a, a little thing to say that, that we've seen that announcement and we are definitely, definitely going to be talking about it uh, when we come back from our little break at the end of October. So for now, enjoy episode 61 and uh, enjoy the interviews that I've got coming up in the next couple of months. And uh, yeah, we will be back to discuss this exciting development. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 61 of the Surf Simply podcast. We are recording on Tuesday, the 4th of September, 2018. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And Asha King. I was going to say hello, everybody. Oh, no. no. Stole your opening. Hi, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys. Uh, Will, you have not been on the podcast for a while. No, I have not. Harry and we need to, uh, we have some congratulations that we've we've dished out to Jesse, but we need to. uh, Yep. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Uh, yep. The wedding planning is going ahead? The Well, uh, Jesse assures me it is. Yeah. <laughs> You're taking a suitably male approach <laughs> Absolutely, to this. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell me where and when and I'll be there. Exactly, yeah. No, I've been... Um, you, you're, the, you're, the, you're on the house building it, Exactly. We've, t- we've both had our roles and we've been building a house for the past six months and we're about three weeks short of moving in, so... Are you um, really? Yeah. That's we'll gone move, hell quick. We're going to move in on my 30th birthday, which is quite a nice birthday gift. Oh, that is oh, so my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I think so. you've set the record for the fastest building project in the summer. I think so. It's the only one that's less than a year. Yeah, you, you know? lapped the, our, our new resort. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's so we're looking forward to that. It's going to be good. Very, very impressive. Yeah. And you're uh, freshly back from the States? Yep. Uh, did a little shotgun trip to the States, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, mm-hmm. but... Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a whirlwind. I had like a week hangover, uh, just tired-wise, yeah. from traveling them. I traveled about 48 hours for 24 hours in Florida, yeah. so that was pretty tiring. Um, other than that, we've been working a bunch on the resort. Uh, yeah, You guys have been doing way more of it than me, but um, we've talked about it on the episodes before, but we have kind of an iconic surfboard in each of our 10 rooms, yeah. and there's going to be a little... Uh, picture of it next to it and a description and yeah it's been pretty fun to work on 
yeah, it's one of the illustrations that we're having with with these uh, with these boards is going to be like a schematic diagram. So I had to drive up to San Jose and get well, bring some of the boards back anyway, and then take measurements off the other ones and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's uh, that they're looking they're looking pretty cool. I was pretty excited when I got back and had that that stack of uh, long boards to show you. Yeah, it's been it's it's interesting. So the the two that I've been working on were the um, Velzy Pig and Magic Sam, which are both wide point back. Uh, real longboard style boards, and it's it's funny because it's been a really small, a, a non-typically small summer of surf here. Mm-hmm. So I've been on a longboard a bunch and riding a bunch of different style boards, and the two boards I've been on are pretty much directly inspired from those two. Mm. Um, I got a Bing step deck I've been spending a lot of time on, which is pretty much just a template ripoff of a uh, of an old Velzy Pig, and then uh, spending a bunch of time on a Aussie slasher style board. That's, it, it's almost an exact copy of magic Sam. So that my name popped up for those two. It's been, I've been researching yeah. it and like, Oh, I'm going to look at this on my board and watch the rocker there. And yeah, it's been pretty fun to geek out on. That's very cool. Having touched some of the, the surfboards that you've had made for the rooms, mm. it makes me so grateful for the one that follows any of those boards. Yeah. <laughs> Just looks so challenging to ride. You know, progression has never looked so easy. It's funny when you when you look at some, I mean, especially some of the ones where you got you got that like kickstart of the shortboard revolution, the, the mm-hmm. sort of the end of the '60s through to, I mean, basically through to the end of the '70s. That that whole decade, the basic board that they had was was that kind of Dick Brewer lightning bolt minigun, which. For what it was shaped for, kind of, you know, it, it did its job. Um, you could paddle into a big wave on the north shore of Hawaii and, and it would work. And you could take it to Ulus in Indonesia and, and it would work. When it filtered over to Sebastian Inlet in Florida. That's it. <laughs> or, 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 I, so I have one. I, I have one in, in my, my parents' house, mid-70s, I guess, built for the UK. And it's still that, like, teardrop outline like, there's no way that thing was going to work and we've got a couple of the boards that were, were sort of through that mid we've got the, the plastic machine from mctavish we've really got cool board the uh ben iper uh sting which looks super weird um we've got we've got a a, a bonza but but you know a 70s era bonza with with the, the old rails and the bottom contours and it yeah got it, it it makes you realize how lucky we are to have the boards that we have now. A lot of them are, you know, template-wise, they're really beautiful outlines, right? Like they, they're they're functional and obviously well thought out. And a lot of them have been picked up by shapers now and are, you know, like for example, your Bonzer or or some of the twin fins that I surf. But it's amazing how much difference tweaking the bottom contours or or taking the foil in just a little bit in the nose or tail. Yeah, like ours are almost perfect perfect replicas. And yeah, they're pretty clunky. Yeah. So it's just the little tweaks make a really big difference. I yeah, know. absolutely. Um, Harry, what have you been up to? Um, yeah, not much actually. Uh, again, lots of stuff for the resort. Lots of little um, planning meetings here and there about stuff. We obviously got the coaching project that's taking place in the UK. So Tommy is actually l- taking lead on that. But mm-hmm. but I've been pretty involved with 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 a lot of that stuff. So that's gonna be a fun project. Yeah, as soon as we uh, as soon as we shut up shop at the end of this week here, everyone's jumping on planes and and heading to the UK for that project. So that should be really fun. And um, yeah, actually, I had a really fun week uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, finishing off um, a new coaching video on uh, angled takeoffs, which has been really interesting to work on. You know, we've we we have at the resort for for listeners that that haven't been to stay with us, we have these kind of 
pre-prepared lecturettes, I guess. So as we're as we're teaching different skills and techniques to to guys that come and stay with us, we have some kind of pre-prepared video presentations that are just kind of visual aids to what we want to talk about. And uh, some of them we've had for a couple of years now. And so I was putting together a, a new one with uh, actually a lot of help from from Will doing some some graphics for me, uh, getting his Photoshop skills on and. Um, Tommy and Harrison throwing themselves <laughs> over the falls and making some deliberate mistakes for me. But yeah, it's it's been really fun. It's always really fun going going back to kind of a core skill and trying to rethink like mm-hmm. how you can teach it better. Um, and you know, the last time that we made the video, we did it all from basically one camera angle on the beach filming stuff. And now we've got water shots, we've got the drone, we've got you know all these different angles. We can, we've got the, the the graphics that you've produced for as well. And and you know, there's so much more that you can do then in that context in terms of creating a useful visual aid oh i'm ready to get my coaching hands on them <laughs> yeah yeah i'm pretty excited about it you know what i did today what's that that actually neither of you have perhaps kindly commented on mm. i was about to say i've been with you most of the day so well, i'm interested to hear i left the house at seven o'clock this morning wearing mm-hmm. jess's surf simply t-shirt and it wasn't until about three o'clock this afternoon that someone pointed out that i'm wearing <laughs> a lady's small <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still in the t-shirt. I've just remembered I'm still wearing the t-shirt because I haven't been home yet. Well, it looks quite good on you. Yeah, oh, other than the, the, the pretty <laughs> dainty sleeves. They're <laughs> a little high. That, <laughs> now that you've pointed it out, it is a bit more muscle top than yeah, what you yeah. would normally wear. And yeah. I feel if you raised your arms above your head, it's, I'd see more of no, your belly yeah, than... Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> I'm just surprised how few people have obviously looked at me and judged me, which is quite comforting, yeah, I think. There you go. You know? there you go. Or I look ridiculous every day and this is just part of the ensemble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, before we go into the news, we do just have a quick correction. Um, when we did episode 60, we were talking about the big, big swell that uh, hit Indonesia and the huge toe surfing waves that, that hit Uluwatu. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Tom Jenkinson got in touch with us to say that he was sitting on the cliffs watching and taking photos uh, while all that was uh, happening. And he says that we are we we were massively undercalling it. I, I think that in trying to not overhype the whole thing, I think I referred to it as triple overhead at the least. Mm. Uh, and he says that um, they got to the bar on the on the cliffs at about six a.m. to get the best seats, uh, and they stayed there until four p.m. just shooting photos and watching the whole thing. And he said it was it was just an incredible experience to sit there on the cliff. So thank you, Tom, for. Uh, getting in touch with us and uh, and correcting us on that and uh, I'm very very jealous of you to, that you got to sit on the cliff and watch that live yeah I will say that um, Tom's email says that he got to Singlefin at 6am and stayed until 4 um, I've spent a bit of hazy time at Singlefin and <laughs> I feel like his perspective on the wave size might not be the strongest by 4pm <laughs> I've gotten to Singlefin a few times at about 4pm and by about 6pm I didn't even know that Uluwatu was in front of the cliffs. So, <laughs> on you, Tom. That's pretty uh, good of you to to be shooting all day from that perspective and not indulge. So, yeah, it's very cool. He also says, um, you know, I, I, I said that there weren't uh, many people paddling, and he says that that actually there were on the smaller sets. There were there were a whole bunch of guys out there paddling into waves. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, anyway. Uh, rolling into the news, just a couple of uh, quick stories. We have the start of hurricane season obviously coming as we roll into uh, into the autumn or uh, the fall, as Asher would say. But weirdly, actually, the first big hurricane that we've had is hitting Hawaii or hit Hawaii 
a couple of weeks ago, Hurricane Lane ran past pretty close to the Hawaiian Islands and caused a little bit of a uh, little bit of flooding and a little bit of storm damage. I think they got pretty lucky on that one. It just kind of bent out to sea at the last moment. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely got some pretty nasty rainfall, and mm-hmm. and um, there's some footage of big flooded. I guess I guess because it's all volcanic, it must be that the runoff must be so quick. Like as soon as the rain hits, it must hit the rivers and just flow straight into them. But yeah, one way and another between. Uh, volcanoes and hurricanes. Hawaii's taking a bit of a battering recently. The other thing in the news is that we are obviously just about to roll into the CT, the first CT event at Kelly Slater's Wave Pool, which is super exciting. Blink-182 have been uh, signed up to headline the, the music side of the event, which is an odd choice to my mind. I realise I'm not very well connected to who's got records out at the moment, but I'm not aware of Blink-182 being uh, at the top of the charts at the minute. Just to put that into perspective of how disconnected Harry is, I was privy to a conversation between Harry and Adri, uh, one of our videographers at the resort, and he asked <laughs> what kind of music she liked, and Adri was reeling off clearly a bunch of bands i had not a clue (laughs) it was so funny i think they were you were trying to determine like what musicals she would like in london by what music she listened to well i was well not just musicals but but, so so adri is is she's our videographer at the resort and and she's coming over as part of the uk project and then she's going to spend a few days in london and she's like i'd really like to see some music i was like oh what sort of music do you like it's london like you any night of the week you can go and see a gig of do you want jazz do you want classical do you want rock do you want dance music you know you know what, what do you want and um, link 182 <laughs> won't well, be there because booked out <laughs> of the surf ranch i was sort of hoping she was going to give me like some genres or something that, that i could kind of work with and she gave me a couple of bands which i assume are popular with the youth of today <laughs> she's got some edgy music taste i think she's Has got she? like the okay well that makes yeah, me feel alternate under the radar that makes me feel better that i didn't know who any of those bands were because she reeled off about five names i was like <laughs> no never heard of them i could see no, harry's, never heard of harry's them. confidence like, oh. just sinking after well, like, every if, name was read. Yeah, if she'd given me a couple of things that were like, oh, I like this type of music. I was like, right, you want to go to this part of London or... Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who was on their short list for the Surf Ranch. I wonder who was like, who couldn't made it. And they were like, ah, oh, well, Blink-182. Because, well, I, I mean, there was a point when obviously Blink-182 headlining would have been a huge thing, but I feel like that was when I was in school when like blink 182 were really at the top of the thing I, you didn't, uh, when, when I i'm was coming at this school, from an english perspective when i was in school so yeah when i was in school blink 182 was like cool old music <laughs> <laughs> when I was, so yeah i don't know they're uh, they're maybe they're back are they putting records out at the minute i don't know i don't i have no i have no clue i'm gonna look that up I forget the name of the, the their first. It was a really edgy album that had like a like a nurse on it putting on a glove. Mm-hmm. I remember looking at that and being like, "Whoa, Blink One Eight Two must be cool." Yeah, new album out. Mm. Uh. I think it's probably fair to say Blink One Eighty Two are at, at that point in their career where it doesn't really matter. They, I'm sure they've got such a huge following. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. WSR. I feel like some of their ads have had some pretty. Like Krungbin did uh, the ads on on WSL, and Krungbin's so good. Like they're a, like a super good band, kind of exploding right now, and they just, yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, it was Enema of the State. Enema of the State. Ah, how did I not know that? Nineteen ninety nine. Wow. Wow. I was so seven. 20. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So twenty years ago. But yeah, they've got a new a new record out. So I don't know. It it yeah, it feels like an odd choice to me. But but maybe they're just expecting a bunch of dudes that are my age 
Dude Ranch. That was Dude. one of their <laughs> That was one of their albums. Yeah. Maybe that's it. <laughs> Since we did episode 60, we've had two WCT contests. We've had the men competing at Chopu in Tahiti, and we've had the women competing at the US Open in Huntington. Which isn't a very fair uh, comparison. Well, yeah, it, 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 they've had a much fairer year this year. Like at all the events that the men have been at, like the women have generally been at them this year. Mm-hmm. They've, they've kind of tallied along with each other and then yeah this is this is quite a split <laughs> yeah at <laughs> least look, yeah i was about to say uh chopu kind of looked a bit like huntington this year chopu was not uh firing on all cylinders this year it was it was pretty small the whole contest really wasn't it yeah whole thing was running like pretty fairly onshore head high i mean it still looked really fun but it actually th- this is one of the first years where i watched it and was like because oh, yeah, yeah. Rue is always Rue went a couple of years ago listeners he went out to Chopu and surfed it a little bit and he has been consistently trying to drag us over there on the promise that it is not as bad as it looks on the video <laughs> and this was the first year where I've, I've watched the contest there and thought well, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's doable although I assume just following logic that the smaller the wave gets the shallower the reef is in front of it oh I'm sure um I don't think anyone was badly injured this year, were they? I think, I don't know, is it like a uh, club break where when it's small, it kind of throws you on the ledge, but where it's big, you actually get rolled over the, the reef into the lagoon? I don't know. I, I think uh, I think that's true of Chopu as well. It yeah. might be true of cloud break. So it's probably, um, t- well, I don't know, when it's small, it probably just docks you on it. Probably. It doesn't sound fun. Uh, anyway, going into Chopu, there was a pretty tight race for the gold jersey. Uh, Julian Wilson, unfortunately, stumbled pretty early on, actually through no fault of his own at all. He, uh, I, I think it would be fair to say he did everything correctly from a contest strategy standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then just the wave never came to him. He was sitting there with priority. He needed a one point something. Yeah. And literally no wave came. And at the point when he realized that he was just going to have to go on something super mediocre, it literally just went flat. And, and I don't think a single wave rolled through in the last five minutes of the heat. That's tough. And that's that's so tough. So that cost him the yellow jersey. It's actually cost him, I think, three places on the. He's gone from first down to fourth on the uh, on the leaderboard. So that's that's pretty tough on uh, to take on on literally just on conditions. Yeah, that's that's just the challenging thing about contests is you can go out there with such a strong strategy, and you, if the ocean doesn't provide, then I don't yeah. know. You you can just get skunked so easily. Yeah. Anyway, that left the door open. Uh, Philippe Toledo um, made it all the way to the semi-finals, and that put him in the gold jersey position. And Gabriel Medina took the win over Owen Wright in the final. So uh, Gabriel's moved up into second place. And I think is, I mean, every the last couple of years previously, he's always struggled a little bit in the first half of the tour and gone on a bit of a tear. Mm-hmm. So uh, we shall see. It looks like it's probably going to come down to Gabriel versus Felipe for the. Uh, you know where you're not going to get skunked for a set wave. Where's that? The Dude Ranch. The Dude Ranch, yeah. <laughs> you're not. Yeah, you're fine there. Have you seen the contest format for the uh, for the Surf Ranch? So I saw some information about it today. I haven't seen it. it it's a bit of a leaderboard, isn't it? Yeah, so they're going to do uh, each person is going to get uh, three runs, basically, right, then left. Uh-huh. Right, then left, right, then left. So six waves in total. And their best right and their best left will be their final score mm-hmm. um, that pushes them through. And then I think I think they've just got that round and then a finals round. Okay. 
or, or maybe it's maybe there's round one, round two, and then a final. But it's it's pretty. Um, I don't think it's going to be quite as long of a contest as it might, uh, you know, as a normal one. It's not going to have like round one, round two, round three, round four, round five, which is perfect. I mean, you, yeah. you knock it out in a three day weekend. Yeah. Um, and so we got the men and the women competing there over over uh, four days. So. And a few long borders. Are they competing? They have an exhibition. An exhibition show. Yeah, I, I, I've seen a couple of the girls that are going to be competing. I, I haven't seen the event list. But yeah, I'm super excited for the Surf Ranch contest. I, as I said on one of the previous podcasts, I didn't, I wasn't too interested in the last one. Uh, I thought the it Founders got a bit, Cup. Yeah, I thought the Founders Cup got a little repetitive. And, and But Rue obviously had such a good time there. But they've done a really good job building up the hype for this one. I know that the the pool's basically been blocked off for the last two weeks for people to practice, and they've been pumping out clips of, it seems like every day the, the progression's getting pushed at the pool, and that's just what they're showing. So I, I'm really excited to see, I don't know, what the Toledos and the Italos and the, the Julian Wilsons do in that sort of format, and where they, they can hit the same ramp as the other guy. And I don't know, I, I'm I'm excited for it. I was listening to a, a an interesting analysis on it, and I, I think it was on Surf Splendor, and they were talking about how it's going to change the guys that are going to do well at the surf ranch aren't necessarily the the guys that are going to surf the best because the wave is pretty predictable and you know all of those guys on tour can perform really well but it's really going to be the guys who can be showmen yeah because you're going to have this huge crowd this huge amphitheater thing and as that wave comes all those people like 20 yards away from you shouting and screaming and the guys that embrace that are going to do well but the guys that don't feel that that, you know are really happy at chopu where they're out in the middle of the ocean with no crowds around them like might actually struggle a little bit through it yeah and you you saw that a little bit in the founders cup like some of the guys really got into it and kind of hyping up the crowds and cheering them on Mm -hmm. i'm clapping above my heads as i say this listeners you can't (laughs) see that but but hyping the crowds up and then other guys were just kind of sort of sitting there kind of quietly just waiting for their wave to come so yeah it'll be interesting to see how that goes it's funny because I don't know the person I'm thinking of sitting quietly is John John, and yeah. he's but the person that I always think of as such a showman. And then when put in Central Valley, California, it just kind of didn't have the same pizzazz. So I wish he was in the event. Although interestingly, I mean, he is he's a showman in environments where the crowd isn't there. Pipeline you know? though. Well, I guess though but he pipeline, hasn't, he hasn't know, won a pipe master. He's never won a pipe masters, and you think about like even at pipe, like how far offshore are you? Like when you're sitting out there paddling into a wave, even if the beach is crowded, I'm sure you're aware of it. Don't get me wrong, I've I, I, I'm aware that, that you would, yeah, there would be a crowd, but it's not like it's going to be at that surf ranch event. Yeah, that's going to be that'll be intense. Yeah. Uh, the women also, as we said, competed at the U.S. Open. And uh, if we thought that the waves at Tahiti were small, uh, they really had nothing on the U.S. Open. Uh, tiny, tiny, tiny waves. Courtney Conlog, uh ended up beating Steph Gilmore uh, in the women's final. And in the men's part of the U.S. Open, it was Kanoa Igashi, uh beat Griffin Colapinto uh, in the final. So it was actually a... Uh, hometown win on both fronts both of them Huntington locals I actually interestingly normally I have no interest whatsoever in the US Open Um, I don't enjoy watching the surfing I found it really impressive this year because the waves were smaller than I've ever seen them 
mm-hmm. and the level of the competition. It was incredible watching guys. I mean, the waves were some of the waves, the set waves that they were choosing to paddle into, weren't even waist high. Yeah. And they were still getting the board like vertical 12 o'clock, like three turns to the beach. I, I was surprised that nobody was that? using more alternative design. Like uh, Tanner Godowskis did pretty well and he was riding a rocket wide, I think, uh, which is, you know, super fishy design. But I'm I'm surprised no one else did. Well, and I know that uh, Courtney Conlog was riding something that relative to her was quite fishy. Uh-huh. Uh, or, or at least uh, a grovel board. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, I was hugely impressed. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen it, I'll put some, uh, I'll put a highlight reel uh, into the show notes so that you can have a look at it. And if you want to see how, how good people can surf in the worst waves imaginable, it's really worth checking out because I mean, be honest. Would you guys have paddled out in those conditions and gone for a surf? No. Like, it looked terrible. Um, Super small, onshore, lumpy and bumpy, and they were killing it. It was so impressive. I I was really impressed with the women's duct tape as well. Yeah, well, so we then had the duct tape uh, invitation. The US Open is obviously, like, a huge thing that happens. So we had the duct tape event, which this year was just women. Which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Big props to, to Joel for putting on that event. Um, yeah, Honolulu Bloomingfield won. She's been on a tear. I think she's world champ this year. Uh, Kalis Keopaha got second. She won the Mexi Log Fest when I was there. I think she's 14. She just turned 14, so that's pretty crazy. Um, I honestly want to see her get put in one of the men's longboarding events, both of them, because there's no difference in the surfing that they're doing than some of the, the, the top-level men. And I think that would be really cool for you know surfing to be on the forefront of that to have a, a, a co-ed division. I think longboarding is prime for it. I was about to say, do you, do you think that that is something that could, because obviously with shortboarding, that there is a performance gap. Like there's there's no getting around it. If if you look at what the the best men are doing in the world, it is different to what the best women are doing mm-hmm. in the world. And, you know, you can have your opinions about which you prefer watching, but it would be very hard to have a, a female compete with the men or a, ma- a male compete with the females. Do you think that the with longboarding, that the way that longboarding is going, where it's going down that more traditional route, where it's a lot more flowy and and a, a lot more focused on on nose rides and stuff rather than than big power turns, do you reckon that there could be that? So I, so quick answer would be yes. Uh, I and I I am a big supporter of that. I think that there should be a commingled event. I think that it needs to be really careful on how it's structured because. A lot of these events have big requirements on surfboards, right? They're usually plus nine foot. Usually, I want to say the duct tapes might even be plus nine four or nine six now, mm-hmm. and have a weight requirement as as well as a width requirement. Um, if you made the women surf the same boards as the men, I think it would be really really tough for them to position it. But if you are playing off the game that you know three feet over your head is a longboard, and you could scale the boards down to a smaller surfer, mm-hmm. which I think should be done. There's no real physical limitation. Like there, there's a big, there's big benefits that women have uh, in longboarding. You know, they're naturally more graceful. They're they're naturally lighter weight, which works really well for some of those small waves. Mm-hmm. So if if you kind of emphasize the criteria, like what you're saying, more grace, more more trim based, and left it more open ended, I definitely think. I not only think that they could compete, I think they should compete against the men. Mm-hmm. 
Very cool. Um, quick wrap up then with the uh, fantasy surfing results. Uh, Robert's picks won Tahiti, and uh, Jerome's picks are uh, in the lead overall uh, in the women's division. Uh, Reese's picks won the open, and uh, Team Front Bum is still in the lead. Team Front Bum. Yeah. I, I feel some of these listeners are just naming their teams because they know that if they do well, I'm going to have to say it on air. So I wonder if there's <laughs> just a lot of really funny names. There are, if you go the through the list. list. Or if it's the funny names that just continuously win. No, no, no. There's there's some pretty good names that haven't won, but if they do, <laughs> I'm going to have to say it out loud. Do you think this is just Rue with lots of different yeah, accounts? Probably. <laughs> Rue's actually not <laughs> yeah, with us in the way. podcast right now because he's doing prep work for his fantasy surfer fantasy team. Surfer team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's was researching. It, was it Bonerman5000 that took it out last year? He's just yeah. a stiff opponent. <laughs> <laughs> stiff um, competitor. Very good. And uh, yeah, for the for the next events, uh, the Surf Ranch uh, for the men and the women starts on September 6th. And uh, Asher, I see you've added to the show notes that the, uh, the Relic event is uh, taking place at Lower Trestles from the 9th to the 19th. The Surf Relic event is actually called on for the 10th, 11th, and 12th. So that's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. It's probably going to be pretty much right when this podcast comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, the forecast is really good, and it's a week out. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a beautiful display surfing. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super interested to see what the traditional guys do. You kind of already know what the, the high-performance longboarders are going to do at lower trestles. I mean, it'll be amazing, but... Um, I'm really interested to see what the traditional style longboarders do on that canvas. I wonder how much access they will have had to that wave beforehand. Because I imagine if you showed up at lower trestles on most days with a big traditional log, yeah, you they'd would get shouted out of the water pretty quick. Yeah, they'd tell you to go back to Sano <laughs> pretty quick. I've I've surfed lower trestles twice, and neither of those occasions was a particularly pleasurable experience. Yeah, I. I um I, I surfed lowers a couple times on a log actually, but it was back when uh, NSSA Nationals was was oh, at really? lowers. Yeah. No way. So, cool. but then again, I was pretty light back then. I was riding a pretty performancey board. <laughs> it was way different surfing. But uh, yeah, I can't wait. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So we um we alluded earlier uh, in the podcast about a short trip I did back to Florida last week, and yeah, I was uh, I was honored to be invited to participate in the first loggerhead classic last week uh which was a traditional longboarding event put on by justin quintal and held in my hometown of jacksonville florida many listeners will be familiar with the name justin quintal we've talked about him a bunch and we talk about his board company black rose a ton i love his surfboards big fan check him out um yeah he's been one of the most successful competitive longboarders over the last few years um and he has a really blue collar approach to surfing he said to work to push himself through before he got pushed through vans he a lot of listeners will have seen Under an Arctic Sky, the Chris Burkard film, and, and that kind of gives you a, a good a bit of his backstory. But I assume most of you haven't heard of the event. Uh, don't feel bad because I suspect you're in the vast majority. Uh, it's the first year, but after participating in it, uh, I can solidly say that I think it's going to be probably the, the preeminent event of its kind uh, in the U.S. Other events exist like it. We talked about the duct tape invitational earlier, but... The duct tape only has six or 16 invites, which is a really, really small field. Justin's contest had 32, uh, as well as a women's division uh, with uh, 32 invites as well, as well as a 
equal prize press, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and that many competitors led to it being a really diverse group of surfers in the event, but still a small enough event that it could be held in one day, which uh, is pretty important, especially for an event at this size. It's really hard to get permitted for multiple days. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, Asher, what would make an event uh, traditional? Ah, that is a really good question. So events like the Mexi Log Fest and Joel Tudor's Duct Tape uh, often define the criteria by saying traditional surfing, but I feel like they don't give much explanation to it. Um, traditional surfing is really easy to see. Like I, I feel like if you're watching it, it's pretty easy to understand. But so it's like porn in that respect. <laughs> well, <laughs> not the first thing I was going to jump to. But I think it might uh, maybe fit under that category. Wasn't that, wasn't that the, the classic line for, like, how do you censor, like, what is pornography? I don't know, but I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you gave that backstory. My <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, what does this event have to do with uh, porn? But yeah, I guess in contrast to traditional surfing, you'd have a, a WSL-style event, which uh, more or less emphasizes the biggest maneuvers performed. Um, there's obviously a reward for performing multiple on the same wave, but uh, there can be a lot of downtime in between them, and, and how you connect different parts of the waves or, or connect the dots doesn't necessarily factor in. Um, traditional surfing or, or trim-based surfing sort of emphasizes the opposite. You know, The wave is surfed in totality. Um, doing a big technical maneuver is important, like doing a crazy nose ride or, or, or something, but how you link the maneuvers together is kind of paramount to your score. And that's really obvious to see when you look at an event like the duct tape and how surfers in the CT were uh, doing a lot of hops in Huntington and the classic Huntington hops. And, and it was really important to the score line for the girls in the duct tape that they were connecting it. Same thing would be true in this event. Um, more on the criteria later on. Um, as I said, it was a whirlwind of a trip. I, I left here Saturday morning, pretty much traveled all day, uh, arrived on the beach Sunday morning, grabbed my jersey, paddled out, felt like I was pretty confident surfing small waves in Guiones all summer. It was mm-hmm. pretty much totally flat and I got smoked <laughs> in the event, <laughs> like promptly lost. In, 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 at basically the wave I grew up surfing, I paddled out there and I was like, oh, I don't you know, I'll, I'll handle this pretty easy. And yeah, I just got demolished. Now, how did that feel? Because you've, you've done, this is the third event that you've done in the last six months. Yeah. Um, you, you've gone from not competing at all to being a <laughs> pretty, pretty, much pretty full-time competitor. How did that, uh, but you've done reasonably well at the other con- the contests. Like you've made it through a few heats and you've, you've, you've uh, you know, put in a pretty good showing. How did it feel um, going out there at, you know, your home event and, and, not performing as well as you might. <laughs> it was pretty tough because, like, yeah, I I done you know at least mediocrely at at Mexi Log Fest and and a couple other events this year, and then that one, yeah, the waves were small, and that that's just the way competing goes. You know, you you can go out and have a good game plan, and it can get totally flopped on its head. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, my parents were down there; they haven't seen me compete in probably over ten years. <laughs> like, my grandparents showed up in the middle of the day. I was like, oh god, so yeah, sorry guys. Uh, <laughs> But um, the real reason I went to the contest was kind of to be there for the back end stuff. Um, before the event, I talked to Justin, and, and, and he needed a little hand with putting the event on. And yeah, I was really, really excited to be a part of that as well. They had the judging pretty well down, but I was 
put to work calling out for the judges. I, it, when you have an event in small ways, a lot of times uh, multiple people can be up and riding at once. So I was kind of helping the panel of three judges make sure that they had all the waves sequenced and that you know, when you get up to four guys having nine waves in a heat, all of a sudden 36 waves, you, you, you got to make sure it's evenly distributed and make sure everyone's on the, the, the same total. Um, so it was actually a lot more work it's super than I expected. Hard work. Yeah, I, I, I've been around a lot of amateur events and, and judged a ton of them, but being in the booth for a professional event, it was it was definitely another level. Yeah, it's uh, and the other side as well is actually it's it's that mid professional level where there's something genuinely on the line. It's not like a little amateur event where you know nobody really yeah. matters too much. Like this is people's careers. Mm-hmm. But you've still got like four guys in the water and you don't have video replay and you don't have like all the things that are available to the guys on the on the world tour judging circuit. Yeah. Um and that yeah, it's it's tough. I, I um I did one day judging the UK nationals mm-hmm. um a, a long time ago now. But it was it was super fun to do. But yeah, you get that thing where you know nothing happens for a couple of minutes and then a set comes. Yeah, and two guys split one, and then another guy gets another one. No, you've got four surfers. You know, some events you got six surfers in the water. Exactly, all going off in different directions. You know, trying to make sure that the scoring is fair and even. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, having someone else helping call and helping, uh, you know, keep the timing and and whatever. And then a cute puppy walks past, and, and you're off that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, then you hear the ice cream van music. Oh. And you're done. Just. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. So the three guys that were judging, um, I'm really really close with all of them. They're they're pretty much the guys I look to the most uh, growing up. And yeah, I feel like when I, I haven't seen them for a while, and usually when I see those guys, it'd be like a lot of cutting up. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they were in the booth and like doing a job. So I, I was I was really happy to kind of see that focus of them. And, and yeah, it was it was it was pretty fun to watch. No, it's very cool. Um, you mentioned that, especially at a mid level pro event. I mean, everyone's obviously surfing really well, mm. um, but at, at that level, a lot of their surfing will look really, really similar. And it was super interesting to watch them use each piece of the criteria to, to, to pick apart something that, something that was you know, seemingly identical. And the, the criteria for this event was traditional inspired surfing, which we've defined, um, with emphasis on difficulty and technicality of maneuvers, as well as spontaneity and creativity. So it wasn't just how technical the maneuvers was it was how much it was kind of keeping them guessing and kind of having that wow factor so you would have you know two guys who both did a long nose ride and then a cutback and it was sort of the one that was a a bit more you know they they literally they just teased apart every part of it you know how far were they from the braking section when they were nose riding you know how long did they wait before doing a turn how yeah it was just it was really interesting watching them tease every little bit apart and yeah I, i hope i can do some more of it in the in the future very cool. Um, yeah, another thing that I kind of had as a takeaway of the event was I felt like Justin's contest went so well because the boards for the conditions were so appropriate. Like, it was Florida in the summertime. It was really, really small, clean waves. So a longboard was just the obvious choice of what you would ride, right? Anything else would just be ridiculous. But a lot of the events, like some of Joel Tudor's duct tapes, kind of the early rounds of the Mexi Log Fest, like – Sometimes the waves are really big and they just don't really fit a longboard. Um, so it kind of made me 
pose the question, why doesn't anybody do an event where you can set the same criteria where it's still traditionally inspired surfing, but don't put a board requirement on it at all? Yeah, well, we've had that conversation before, haven't we? The uh, the trim-based tour. Yeah, and it, it just seems so like, ripe for doing. I mean, most of these guys that surf the events like don't define themselves as longboarders. You know, if it's small, they'll ride longboards, but if it's soft, they're out of fish or a mid-length or, you know, it's it's kind of how we approach our surfing. Um, and we kind of teach people to approach their surfing every week at Surf Simply. And it's how, you know, most of the, you know, 95% of surfers do approaches different boards for different conditions. So I don't know, I would really like to see an event where you kind of just set the criteria and then you rock up on the day and, and you don't have to force it. You know, it's just like if you went down to the beach and, it, you know, if it was big and choppy, you probably wouldn't ride your nine-foot log. Yeah. I don't know. I think maybe we could make that happen. Well, I, I think off the back of, you know, the success of, of, of Joel's events and, and, you know, the Maxi Log Fest and, and, and this one that you've been to, like, there's obviously interest in it and, and people are obviously into it. And then you look at the, the Highline event that they held at J-Bay yeah. the last couple of years, like, you start to combine those those things together Mm -hmm. and if you just took that approach where i mean sort of like a lot of the interest in watching like a golf tournament is seeing what the professionals choose for different shots Mm -hmm. i think that that would be so interesting for surfing what about if you uh combined that uh with the wave pool with with a wave pool that where you could vary the conditions and you you could say like okay we're gonna throw out like a a pretty punchy you know especially something uh, not that it would necessarily be the best venue for it but like the bsr wave where they can throw a lot of variations at you exactly like okay we're gonna throw this wave at you guys grab whatever board you want Mm -hmm. off you go i mean yeah that that to me that's one of the really cool things about surfing that doesn't you know not every sport has is there is so much of it with you know, how you choose to approach mm-hmm. one of the variables. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I think that is just ripe for the, for the picking. You could call the event, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> 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 Who's the winner? I can't tell you, but yeah, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect name too. <laughs> yeah. But in conclusion, um, yeah, I was really, really proud of Justin for, for having an event like this. Mm-hmm. Um, all three of us are lucky to live in a world where um, you know, surf coaching is a thing and wanting to improve your surfing is, is, you know, it's easy to go about doing it. But for a lot of places, that's not the case. And, and having an event like this to, to see the way that other people approach waves or, or even in competition to kind of push yourself, that really leads to a lot of surfing progression. And as well as the, the mentorship he's providing, he, invi- he invited a lot of young guys who didn't necessarily have the sponsorship to get pushed to some of the bigger events to, to be able to, you know, invite them and, and put this on and, and get the exposure out there for them. Like there was a lot of kids that were featured in Surfer Magazine this week that had never even had a magazine photo before in any publication. So to see that, I, I you know, I, I couldn't have been more happy to see it, especially in my hometown um, where 10 years ago longboarding wasn't really a thing. Like you weren't even really allowed to surf that wave at the pier um, on that style of equipment. Yeah, it was, it was really cool and, and I was happy to be a part of it. Mr. Harry Knight, do you know what the 7.5 mile Cola Super Deep Borehole is? I'm not sure that I do. It's the hole I went down whilst watching YouTube the other night. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Thank you very much. It took me quite some time to <laughs> have that one as the intro. <laughs> However, I am now... I like a good stock 
I yeah. joke. That was good. Uh-huh. I am now too curious. So could you just tell me what it actually is so that I don't have to go and Google it? It's a 40,000 foot borehole. It's the deepest hole in the world, actually. Oh, okay. That man has ever made. Oh, is that the one? Because it's super thin and narrow, but exactly. it's just a very it's thin like borehole. Yeah. yeah, okay. Exactly. Yeah. I like how you chose the man-made hole because you dug that YouTube hole yeah, rather exactly. than, say, the Marianas <laughs> Trench, which... Yeah. <laughs> I, I did some serious digging. Well, I love... Just to interrupt you here, but I love a good youtube hole uh-huh. i go down some but the only problem with going down a dark hole on youtube is that for days afterward it mucks up your recommended <laughs> yeah. uh thing you know when you go to the youtube homepage and it's oh you might want to watch this 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 and this i can tell when i've had an evening and gone down a black hole because my recommendations are screwed for the rest <laughs> of the week <laughs> i like that that's my perpetuating hole and then i just dive back into it yeah but sometimes like the black holes you go down are guilty pleasures and you don't want it you don't want to be reminded of that in the morning i feel like we could tie this back into something (laughs) so many references log out of that account yeah Um, well, during my, during my digging, I landed on one of the videos from, uh, Smarter Every Day. They have a YouTube channel. Yes. I love that guy. Oh man. It's a guy called Destin, uh, Sandlin. And, you know, I don't know necessarily his, uh, academic background, but I know he's an engineer by some description. Mm-hmm. A lot of their videos are sort of explaining and exploring the, the everyday things around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, one of their engineers kind of played a bit of a trick on Destin, uh, where he built a couple different cogs and uh, put them on a bicycle and so that every time you would turn the handlebars, say, to the right, mm-hmm. the wheel would go to the left. So it would be the opposite. The handlebar, yeah. I've I've seen this video and it's super interesting. But yeah, yeah so, so basically to turn right, you had to twist the handlebars to the left exactly, and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, it's called the, the episode is called The Backwards Bicycle Brain. Um, and they basically gave Destin the, the challenge of trying to uh, master this bicycle. And they explained that the, the, the kind of the algorithm within the brain has to be completely retaught to oh, yeah. figure this thing out. And it, it, it's a really great video. It, it shows sort of his, uh, his process, the months and months it took him to actually do this. And during the whole time, he didn't ride a normal bike. He would only pick up the backwards bicycle to, to, to figure it out. And it took him about eight months in total to be able to just ride in a straight line. Um, and they talked about the reason that was, and I'm kind of bringing it in and bringing it up because it's sort of like breaking a bad habit in surfing, I would guess something Mm -hmm. similar where your brain is just, uh, it just does this same thing every single time, whatever that might be, whether it's your weight on the wrong foot or whatever. Um, and it takes months of focus and repetition to kind of work this out. Um, and Destin, he's a 37 year old man. So he's not a, 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 not a young sprightly kid with loads of sort of neuroplasticity as they say um and so eight months in total um and it took his five-year-old son uh, in comparison three weeks to Classic. it's impressive that isn't it it's, it's it's amazing how much different our ability to learn new things is when we're young and yeah. as opposed to when we're old absolutely yeah and the video of him you know, trying to learn the bike. He can't even, it's not a case of him not being able to just bicycle a little bit of a straight line. He can't even take one foot off the ground and put it on the pedal because yeah. we make so many sort of macro adjustments even in that, that it's just near impossible at the beginning. Yeah, it's not even like the sample size is one either. He took the bicycle and toured it 
uh, around universities for like years he was doing university talks where like at Yale and Harvard and these you know like you know Wharton Business School where mm-hmm. it, it, these really really smart you know cream of the crop intelligent kids and he puts them on stage in front of an auditorium and is like yeah you know I'll bet the house on you can't ride eight feet mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> like they're it's like they're just laughing at him like yeah oh, watch me <laughs> and then no one makes it more than six inches yeah you know, do you know who's had a go on one of these bikes who mr keith carnes oh really a street performer in dublin when jesse and keith were on a surf trip to ireland had one and did the same thing kind of walked over to keith and said oh i'll bet you 10 euros you can't ride this bike and keith you know in his confidence probably yeah. a couple of guinnesses <laughs> down the line <laughs> attempted and he went through exactly the same thing it was near impossible see um, i'm i'm pretty certain i couldn't ride the bike but if i was going to bet on one person to do it i feel like keith would just <laughs> pick it up mr keith carnes and absolutely just, and just ride it right away I'm like yeah so i'll take 10 euros please yeah yeah what it kind of says to me like you know we all sort of have our own personal battles with with progression in surfing and things like that we all have our own goals and drills that we we kind of try and do each time and it i think it's like ever like watch this if you're struggling to learn something new like watch this video to give you faith uh, that everybody is going to go through the same process and it takes time to kind of break the, the the algorithm in our brain to learn something new yeah one well, I, I think particularly with surfing as well you know this it's so often we learn a bad habit mm-hmm. you know it's not even like you're learning something new it's it's you have a bad habit that's holding you back and we see that at the resort all the time and and we can give people the information but actually you know processing that information and and breaking that habit is so difficult and it requires yeah. and it requires so much conscious thought as well i mean that's that's one of the interesting things from watching that video is you know you when you watch somebody learning to ride a bike for the first time and generally this is kids so the, the way that you teach them is slightly different but you know in general you go out and you you try to figure it out and you try to figure it out and there's a lot of feel and intuition in it whereas actually trying to learn to ride backwards bicycle mm. it required that that mental engagement yeah. with, with what was going mm-hmm. on to, yeah. to override the instinct to do what was now the wrong thing mm-hmm. the other thing i thought was then very interesting was watching him get back on a normal bike afterwards i was gonna say exactly the terrifying thing really of how quick his brain reverted back to yeah. the original you know and and I, I hate to say it but I, you know that might happen in in our surfing you know we have to take that all that time to learn this new thing and then keep focusing on it and keep focusing on it for then for one moment to to you know he said when he gets a cell phone call or or something goes past him in the street his mind quickly goes back to the original thing and in this case it might be that bad habit yeah you know it it just must take so much time for the body to adapt well which is 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 in our environment and and we see this all the time you know you can get somebody we we do at the resort listeners when we're teaching people new skills or when we're trying to break bad habits because we need the high repetition what we'll quite often do is spend half an hour or so working in the whitewater to get that high rep rate and very often you can fix you know in that whitewater where you you have an experienced surfer in the whitewater on a bigger board they're so far within their comfort zone that they very quickly correct those errors you know whatever it was we were trying to get them to do so they're using their upper body a bit too much in a turn like we can quite quickly get them to use their mm-hmm. lower body as soon as you get them out the back dropping into a big wave straight away that that old habit comes back because they're they're not as far into their comfort zone and that 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 conscious thought 
um, that, that conscious brain power is being used up another thing. It's actually a really nice segue into a piece which I'm not going to do this week. <laughs> <laughs> it's still not quite ready, so it, it will be soon. But yeah, on, on exactly that same process of, of, of how do you clear up mental bandwidth to, to mm-hmm. deal with problems like that. Yeah. So to conclude, that is what the Curler Super Deep Borehole is. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we end up. Yeah. <laughs> so our last piece for this episode is an interview that Jesse and Teal did a couple of weeks ago with author and journalist Bonnie Toy. Bonnie stayed with us at the resort previously, but she has just written a piece all about uh, the female uh, athletes who are going to be competing in the Mavericks Invitational uh, Big Wave event this year. Uh, it's the first year where they've had a full women's field and uh, Bonnie tracked down a whole bunch of those athletes and did uh, a series of interviews with them. You can read the full article in uh, the California Sunday magazine, which uh, I think is on shelves now. Uh, and you can also check the article out online. I will put links into the show notes. Uh, but for now, I am going to hand over to Jessie and let her uh, run the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, podcast listeners, Jesse here, and I'm here with Teal Beckenbach. Hi, guys. And Bonnie Toy. How are you? I'm great. Hi, everyone. We're so stoked to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Oh, I'm really excited to be here. Okay, so just to give you podcasters a little context um, to whom Bonnie is, Bonnie is an author and a freelance journalist. Bonnie is actually also an old friend of ours. She stayed at Sir Simply in 2012 and did a coaching week with us. And she also has been writing some beautiful articles. She's, a, like I said, a freelance journalist and also an author. Um, she also did an article on Surf Simply back in 2012 for the New York Times. And I do have to give you some credit, Bonnie. That gave us a lot of, uh, a lot of noise from <laughs> Surf Simply's point of view. We got a lot of followers from that and a lot of people coming to visit us down in Nassara. So thank you for that. My evil plan worked. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so basically why we have uh, Bonnie here is it just got published today, actually. Um, and Bonnie has written a beautiful article for California Sunday, which is a magazine. And it's about female big wave surfers, which Teal and I totally geek out on. Oh, love them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it just kind of gives like a little glimpse of their lifestyle and um, – them as a professional big wave surfer and, and the training and, and the contests that are coming up. So it's, it's really interesting. But before we move on to that, Bonnie, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am actually, I'm living in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area now. So um, I live and surf and write up there. Um, and I started uh, working as a as a freelance writer about 15 years ago. Um, before that, I'd been an editor at Travel and Leisure magazine in New York. And um, basically for the last 15 years, I've just been um, writing about things that excite me. And and, uh, and obviously one of those things is surfing. But I just recently have been finishing up a new book on swimming. And uh, it's a book um, called Why We Swim. And it's a 
sort of cultural and scientific exploration of of swimming, um, sort of in the same vein, I hope, as something like Born to Run for running and just exploring a lot of the evolutionary questions and the, you know, the the sort of competitive aspects and the science, and but also just like big characters and great swimming and survival stories. And so that's what I've been working on for the last, oh man, couple years. And so I'm really excited to finish up that. And with any luck, it'll be out um, in the world next year. And I'll be, I'll be telling you guys about it. But most of the time I'm not doing books. I'm, I'm, I'm just writing profiles, um, you know, as many features and, and magazine and newspaper stories as possible. And I still do a lot of stuff for the New York Times. And one of the things that I've been really excited about is writing for um, all the different sections, including Sunday Review, which is more sort of ideas journalism and, um, you know, just thinking about all the big questions of the day and, and, and how the, those things sort of relate to each of us on the ground. That sounds amazing. I will look forward to reading that book. And I had heard that you swam in the past, what what was your your competitive swimming like? Um, I grew up uh, swimming from a really young age. My parents actually met in a swimming pool in Hong Kong. That's <laughs> sort of like our origin story. Um, and my father was a lifeguard and my mom was just this awesome swimmer. So, of course, we grew up swimming really early. Um, I started swimming competitively as a kid and swam for 10 years um, out on Long Island in New York and just kind of kept swimming uh, sort of throughout my adult life and and you know, did a bunch of open water swimming and have competed in triathlons and did the Alcatraz swim. And, and part of um, the sort of swimming research for the book is to is to swim with uh, the Dolphin Club out in San Francisco. And they specialize in cold water, open water swims, and they're just the baddest asses out there. Yeah, I think you just became Teal and I's new, like, girl crush, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so awesome. <laughs> I, I guess along those lines, too, like, how did that transform for you to be so inspired to pick these women and, and talk to them about this topic in your latest article? I was inspired to do this story um, because I really wanted to put the spotlight on women in the sport. Um not just women in surfing, but women in big wave surfing. And so you guys know from being so immersed in the sport that, you know, big wave surfing is just a different animal from 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 the rest of surfing. And it's just from the size of the waves to the power of, you know, the, the whitewash that crushes you. It's like, you know, you could have four stories of, of water coming on your head when you finish your wave and um, to breath hold stuff. Like it's just these these women are incredible athletes, um, on the wave. And I, you know, I wanted to put a spotlight on that. Do you see a difference between like the competitive women surfers? Have you interviewed a lot of them or is it just that, you know, that they are such a different breed and that you're just so inspired by those big wave surfers? Um, the question of competition and surfing is really interesting. Um, and, and talking to the big wave women surfers for the story uh, was, you know, even a, a finer slice on that because, you know, I think competition and surfing, people have always been kind of ambivalent about it. Um, you know, how do you judge a wave? How do you judge a sport in which the, you know, the conditions are so mercurial and every wave is different and not everyone is on the same playing field, um, so to speak. Um, and then when you talk about 
big waves, which, you know, are fewer and further between, um, you know, that kind of makes it even more of a rarefied thing. And so a lot of the women I talked to for this story um, had a lot to say about competition um, in that they think that competition in surfing is important, but also that competition in surfing is a strange thing. Um, Competition in surfing is good in that it is where the money is and it's where the attention is. Um, But, and so in terms of getting equity in the sport uh, for for both genders, um, that's like competition is kind of where where a lot of the change has to happen. But it's also the business of the sport, sponsorships. It's um, you know where is the media coverage? So Bonnie, with interviewing these big wave surfers, these women that are paddling out into these fifty foot waves, what was one thing that you didn't expect that came up for you while while going through the interviews? I mean, all of, there are so many things that these women said that uh, were inspiring and surprising. Um, and I guess one of the things that uh, that surprised me most was how sort of ambivalent they felt about competing. Um, they w- love surfing so much, and they love the you know the love the feel of being on these you know five story waves um but then you know and they want the equality they want the the you know the financial parity, but at the same time it's sort of like you know I just love to surf I just love to surf um independent of all of that, and so they sort of wrestle with all these questions at the same time they're like pushing for it because they know that it's important for everyone else who comes after them to um, have that opportunity. And so it's like time on the wave. It's what, what is the way to inspire other, other girls to take up the sport? And did you see that as like a continuous theme with all of them? Cause obviously you interviewed different big wave surfers. Um, did you see that there was a theme between all of them? Uh, one of the things that, these women had in common was, you know, they are professional surfers. They are the best of the best in the world. And pretty much all of them said, you know, I have a day job or I have other jobs or I have, you know, 10 jobs that I that I juggle to make this sport possible for me. So they don't it's not how they make their living for the most part. Um, You know, Paige Alms, uh, I mean, she said that you know, this past year has been really different for her, you know, versus the last 10, because she actually has, is devoting more, more and more of her time to just training and, com- you know, just being the best surfer she can be. But, you know, she said she's done everything from like carpentry to finishing floors to, um, you know, all kinds of jobs and, and just that, you know, she working in a restaurant. Um, so, the you know these women are the best big wave surfers in the world and yet they all work other jobs that's pretty amazing gotta pay for the dream talk about multitasking yeah it's really it's it's crazy did you see also kind of the same question but um more into their training like did you see a lot of because teal and i are are super into working out and training on side of surfing and we see so many benefits and i'm sure you do too with swimming from you know, out of the water training, but did you see any continuing themes with these women and their training for big wave contest and, and surfing? Um, it's both surfing as much as possible. And of course, with big wave surfing, the again, the big wave con- conditions are just really few and far between. You have to chase the swells and, and they're just, they don't happen that often. And so you're really always just surfing a and then B doing everything else, you know the the land training, the the strength 
building stuff, the underwater, the breath hold stuff. Um, so it's, it's both serving as much as possible and then doing everything else around that when you can. While having a full-time job. <laughs> While having a full-time job or Probably raising jobs, a family you know. too. <laughs> and raising a family. <laughs> what we keep on hearing over and over again is that these women in this sport are looking to have this equality there with the men. They're, they're charging the big waves as well. And so I guess how do you feel as an up-and-coming woman surfer in the surf industry – and are there any similarities with being a female journalist where we're, we're fighting for that, that equality? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always thought about um, being a writer is that your words, um, I mean, at least on the gender equality front, um, your words have to do the work, <laughs> you know, and I, I, really enjoy the reporting part. I love being in front of people to in getting their stories and, and, and you know, listening to them. Um, but at the end of the day, what you produce for the page is the thing that stands for yourself. And so, um, and, you know, and then a lot of the, the sort of communications you do with people, um, your editors uh, who are assigning the pieces, um, that's virtual, you know, that's over email or it's a phone call. Um, and so in the actual work it's very gender neutral um if if you can even say that i mean versus other jobs i mean it's just it's just it's just um it's very cerebral um but um i will also say that i know i've been offered less money um for various assignments than male counterparts and i don't know it's really hard to parse that out because you know Editors will make the argument that perhaps that it's an experience thing or, um, you know, that that we're trying you out as a new writer in the past. I mean, I mean, I, obviously, I'm more established now than I have been in the past. But um, it's it is like, there are a lot of things that are kind of insidious. Um, and I think you're right to ask that question. I, I, I know we're kind of going down a couple of different paths here, but um, in the article, when you interviewed these women, you picked some absolutely gorgeous quotes. I mean, I think that just made the whole article and it, it is a quote heavy article. Um, any inspiration of why you chose those certain quotes or was that just kind of going back to the theme? Was that kind of the theme or was it something that you wanted to specifically get out there for readers? Well, we really had this vision um, of each of these women representing a particular aspect of the sport and the state of the sport uh, for them. And so because they, you know, they obviously could speak on the same t on the same topics, um, but we wanted each of them to address particular issues, you know, whether it's training or um, the gender part of it or the finances or, um, you know, how what it's like to actually surf the wave. So they all could obviously speak to those topics but because um it's we it's it's just so vivid to hear um the the specifics of it we wanted it to be really visual and we also wanted to really hear um you know the character of their voices in each of the of the quotes so that's how we envisioned it and we and I'm really glad it came across that way yeah oh it's it's beautiful and then after did you as a as a surfer feel like you wanted to go and push yourself in surfing 
oh my god, I feel like I want to push myself in surfing every day, but there's no effing way that I will ever put myself out in these big, you know, these big waves. I, you know, I think that the biggest wave I ever surfed was actually when I was in Nosara with you guys. And the only reason I know how big that wave was is because you photographed it from the beach, <laughs> you know, double overhead, monster wave. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I can, I can put that picture on my mantle and say with pride that I did surf that wave because there's evidence, but I mean, there's no way that I could, um, do what they do. But I mean, I love, I, I love to push myself. And so I think that aspect for sure, like I, I was inspired talking to them about surfing because you know no matter how big the wave is and this is something that Bianca Valenti says she's just like it doesn't matter how big the wave is like it it really it always your stoke is the same it feels amazing and that's why we all go out there oh that's really beautiful I love that so Bonnie um what I wanted to ask you you mentioned we when when you're saying you wrote the article and we noticed that Rosemary Cromwell is the photographer for the article had Mm -hmm. had you worked with her before and how was the partnership as far as the photography and then um, writing the article? Um, We actually hadn't worked together before Um, with this particular story. um, We, we meaning the, the editors at the magazine and and I um, wanted to get a sense of each of the surfers characters and and sort of listen to what they had to say first before we figured out what we wanted the visuals to look like um and so i talked with and interviewed um each of the six surfers and spent time uh out at ocean beach with bianca valenti um which was humbling and amazing i mean basically surfing I'm, I'm putting air quotes around surfing with Bianca Valenti at OB because um, it, it basically consisted of me getting a, you know, fisheye view of her like squeezing the barrel. You know, it's just like, it's awesome. Um, and, you know, going through the the thrash of the paddle out, out with her. And it was just so, so much fun to be out there with her. She's just a ton of fun and she's a blast and she's just an excellent human. Um, but that aside, um, in terms of reporting the story, we wanted to, again, just like kind of get a sense of everyone's personalities and what their day-to-day routines were like. What we found was that, you know, each person talked about different things and, and after listening to their sort of daily routines and, and what their lives look like, you know, for example, Andrea Moeller, um, you know, working as a paramedic and then, you know, ending her shift and and uh, she has all of her surfboards with her and then she kind of sees what the ocean is doing and then she goes out um, for a session and um, you know Keala talking about these hideous injuries she's had um, and what recovering with them from them was like and Paige on training and um, Bianca on just trying to figure out how to make the women's division at Mavericks happen. So we just, we just kind of listened to each of them first and then decided, okay, like this is, how do we represent each of them in a way that feels really particular to each person? And so um, the photo editor, Jackie Bates, had a vision of, of who she wanted and um, to kind of look at, you know, and depict the surfers in a way that's, uh, that's not how they're usually seen, you know, in, in regular surfing magazines. That's awesome. And could you tell us a little bit how they're feeling about that contest at Mavericks coming up? Um, I mean, everyone's just stoked. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that they said was, uh, it's awesome to be out 
on the wave with no one else except their friends. I mean, that's just bananas, right? You never get that. You never get an empty lineup that's just populated with your friends on an awesome day. Or rather, you don't get it very often. Not all of us live in Nosara. So. <laughs> Uh, we're not we're not that lucky but um but they just really had this um deep just deep appreciation for just that what they get to do and that they get to do it with people they really respect and you know are buddies with and then uh, you were starting to talk about all the different girls could you dive a little bit more into their different personalities Sure. Um, I mean, Bianca, uh, you know, I spent the most time with Bianca. um, And, and so getting to just by virtue of us both living in the Bay Area. So we went um, to Ocean Beach to surf together. And then we talked a lot. um, And she's just, um, you know, she's just like an amazing human. She's just fun and, um, you know, straight up and just an incredible surfer. Um, and she's just, she, you know, she, she, she's a wine specialist. I mean, these are things you may not know about her. So in terms of the jobs that we were talking about for everyone, she works at her, um, family restaurant, um, in, in San Anselmo in Marin in California. And, and she, um, I guess her grandfather was like one of the first, um, sommeliers in Italy or something like that and her and her dad is the chef at this um Valentian company this restaurant family restaurant and um you know she she's just a people person I think that it's fun to get to know um someone who's just like she just won the the big wave contest at Mm -hmm. at Puerto Escondido and it's just kind of fun to um get to know someone as a person um outside of just knowing that they're amazing surfers and then the other surfers I mostly talked to on the phone and so got to know them that way and kind of listened to them talking about their lives and what it's like to surf um where they surf and their home breaks and um why they got into surfing to begin with and so that was really fun when you were talking to them how they got into surfing was there ever this is like my ultimate question for any big wave surfer like was there anything that stood out along the lines of Surfing average waves just didn't do it for me. So I really had to like chase down the biggest waves. Um, you know, let me think about that one. I, I, I remember asking Sarah Gerhardt, um, you know, she grew up surfing uh, on Oahu. And then she um, said she just kind of like on the North Shore started going out with her boyfriend at the time who also surfed and um, who's now her husband. And um, just like falling in with a crew of guys. And she said she was always just the only woman out there. Um, And she just said, I just loved surfing the big waves and I just wanted more and more and more. (laughs) And so I don't know if they, no one ever said to me like, you know, I got kind of of sick of the, the small sloppy stuff and wanted to go for like, you know, waves the size of buildings. But I just had the sense that they all have this, um, you know, not that they have no fear, but because they did talk about fear a lot um, and and sort of how they deal with it. But um, they kind of you kind of have to be able to shove that away to be able to look down the face of the wave, you know, f- before you drop in like that. Yeah, I mean, I assume you have to be pretty calm and collective to be wanting to drop into a to a big wave like that. Did any of them seem like, um, you know, pretty 
calm surfers or were, were they pretty like calm in their personalities as well or um yes they all were there definitely was this common uh feeling of of calm <laughs> among all of the women and i think that makes a ton of sense when you when you're facing these big waves and and surviving them and and figuring out how to make it down and out of the wave <laughs> alive because as as we all know having watched these competitions i mean it is it is really hairy out there and it and um it's really dangerous did they mention anything when they're underneath a wave what they're thinking about what they're feeling the sounds the light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they all talked or many of them talked about how they just tried to remember that they had a ton more air than they felt like they did. Um, and I think that's something you guys have also talked about oh, yeah. obviously, <laughs> on the podcast with, with just staying, um, you know, staying calm and, and the more you struggle under the water, it, like that's, that's what's eating up all your oxygen. So, um, they definitely talked about that. And then, you know, Paige was the person I talked to the most about being underwater and, and, and the training that you have to do to achieve that sense of, um, you know, that, that you're going to be okay and that you have dealt with way worse. And so this by comparison is, is nothing to be held under for, you know, 30 seconds or something. Um, Bonnie, with interviewing all of these um, big wave surfers, did did you find that they had a sense of camaraderie together or are they pretty individualistic, I guess? They all had an amazing sense of camaraderie. And, and I think that that I, I thought that um, when I first started doing this story that they had been friends for years and years and years and it just, you know, like they just knew each other through surfing and and just you know competing and all that but what I found out from Bianca was that it really only started a like a few years ago um with that competition at Oregon's um Nelscott Reef uh where they it was the first um big wave competition that invited women that had some prize money and so you know the one that I mentioned in the in the story was I think it was 2010 you know same same reef same same competition where they were invited but it was like only three women and they had no money and so it was like very much an exhibition and then you know I was like that's not a real competition (laughs) and so the you know a few years ago they had the they had the same they had a full heat and and Bianca said you know, it was so fun and it was incredibly successful. And then, you know, they came up with money at the last minute and, and they, and they had prize money and, and it was kind of like, it was really successful. People really showed up and, um, and then they started kind of talking amongst themselves and, and, and getting to know each other. Um, and so that was a real breakthrough, I think. I have a couple questions based on what you just said and kind of going back into the equality and inequality, you know, there must be male big wave surfers that have part-time jobs too. Did you mm-hmm. happen to hear a lot about like, is there equality with women and men big wave surfers? Like, do they get paid the same um, in contest or is there like, is there different tiers or did you hear anything about the difference with men and women in big wave surfing? Um, yes, absolutely. There's a huge difference. And I'm going to be really clear and say that they do not get the same amount of money <laughs> as men. Um, and, you know, this this 
big wave contest in Puerto that Bianca just won. She got, um, I believe it was $1,750 was the prize for that, um, you know, first place in the women's uh, contest. And then the men's division was $7,000 in prize money. So that um, is one example. Um, and then in in at Peahi, you know, Jaws, like that's, you know, it's not, it hasn't been the same money either. So they're, you know, they're pushing to have Mavericks be financially, you know, the same money for men and women, um, you know, the, the people who win. Um, and they're, you know, dividing up the, the pieces of the pie. It's just, it's an ongoing question. And something that Bianca said really struck with me, she said, you know, I don't, I don't see it as a pie that is limited. She's like, I see it as an infinity pie. You know, like, why does it have to be that, you know, you feel like if, if someone gets a certain amount of money, it's going to be taken out of your piece, you know? So I think that that's a really kind of important idea to seize upon. Yeah. And do you think that has to do with the sponsors? Do you think that has to do with um, the amount of men in it? Did they talk anything about that? Yeah, I mean, she talked. A lot of them talked about this sort of old mentality that sticks with the surfers. You know, it's like if if this person um, makes it, no one else will. You know, there's going to be left less for everyone else, um, and it a lot of it has to do with sponsorships. But in in all honesty, it's like the you know it, they're trying to shake up the existing models. It's like you know the real power coming from the people at the top are making the decisions like, okay, this is actually important to us. So with Mavericks making the, making the competition permit with the California coastal commission, just contingent on having a women's division was um, part of, you know, the sort of equal access to the coast. And that's, you know, that's in California law, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a coastal doctrine. And so to make it what it is, is, instead of deciding to exclude someone based on just faulty logic. I mean, it's just, it's, it's sort of, you know, you're making, you're you're just working on different assumptions and, you know, imagine say, uh, you know, Quicksilver or Billabong saying, you know, we're only going to sponsor events that have equality. Then you have a lot of power, you know, it's just, and then, and then, and then everyone get the skill level comes skyrocketing up and, and there's just more opportunities for everyone. Uh, Bonnie, moving kind of outside of the the money realm with these female surfers, what did any of them mention what it's like paddling out in a lineup that's pretty much been dominated by men, big wave chargers, um, and how they felt when they initially paddled out into that lineup? Um, they all talked about getting all kinds of disparaging remarks. I mean, I don't want to repeat them because I just feel like they don't merit repeating, but mm-hmm. there's, they've all had ugly things said to them about, um, you know, whether or not they belong there, whether it's what they're wearing, what board they're paddling, um, you know, that they're just girls, um, and just like being questioned for just their presence there. And so I think that they've all weathered that to varying degrees. Um, and, you know, now they just don't, they just don't give a, an F about it because okay. they've, you know, they don't have anything to prove to the men. I mean, right. they're, they're proving things to themselves. 
Yeah, they're proving that they can surf the same wave that they can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, well. at the end of the day, it's the it's the same wave, and it's a it's a body on a wave. Um, and uh, from a young age, I, I know that a lot of them have talked about you know that you're always going to feel a disadvantage because society tells you that you're a girl and you're less strong. Um, and really, you know, when it comes to surfing, like being flexible and lighter i mean like those are advantages too it's sort of like the balance of the thing you know on the wave and on the board so it's all these things that don't you know it's not it doesn't make sense logically to to what women or men just humans can achieve on a surfboard and sort of being the voice for those beautiful women is there anything that you want our listeners and readers to take away from your your article that you wrote and is there anything that you would want them to sort of take away from this podcast Oh man, just get out and surf. Um, actually, I, I just realized I said, oh man. It's, it's so okay. funny because, <laughs> but, it, but it is funny. Um, you know, the, the sort of uh, the mantra they've had lately is like, woman up, you know, like, let's just, let's just do this. Let's get, let's make it just as um, visible for women to be out on the waves and enjoying this amazing sport. Um, and so the visibility is just really important just to see someone who looks like you out on the waves. Um, and, and that is the most inspiring thing. Bonnie can thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for having me. Do you want to just give yourself a a little plug and and tell us where people can find you if they want to look you up on Instagram or social media or Sure. Um, so you guys can find me on um, Twitter at Bonnie Toy, B-O-N-N-I-E-T-S-U-I. And I love hearing from uh, readers and listeners and, um, you know, just talk about talk about surfing, talk about stories. I mean, that's my favorite thing. The magazine, the issue went live uh, this week at CaliforniaSunday.com. But it comes out in print on Sunday. So it's uh, it's a print magazine that's subscription, but also comes in sort of newspaper partnerships around the country. Okay, well, um, thank you, Bonnie, for joining us today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day, Bonnie. It has been a pleasure chatting with you. Oh, it was so much fun on my end. Thanks so much, you guys. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is pretty much all for this episode. Uh, we're all off on our various adventures. Uh, myself and Asha are heading off to Europe. Uh, Will, you're going to head off to the UK as well? I'm think, going to Northern England, yeah. The, Delightful. The glamorous northeast. However, you'll be very glad to hear, listeners, that uh, we have for once pre-prepared ourselves. Uh, and I do have uh, some cool interviews uh, all lined up. So we will we will have a couple of episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks, uh, but they won't be regular podcast episodes. Before we go for now, then, uh, a couple of little what-to-watches. Uh, Asher, what do you got for us? All right, I got two for you. Two. We are going to be off air for a while. Anyway, my first is Jack Coleman's most recent edit. Really big fan of Jack Coleman and his editing style. Uh, It always takes surfing and makes it like as silly and fun and colorful as I feel it is when I'm in the ocean. Um, It's called Down at the Boo, uh, and it's just a really good summer south swell scored to some killer jazz. Um, And yeah, it kind of just represents how much I like Malibu. And kind of the reason why I find it uh, so enticing. The second video on a non-surfing note, uh, to get the taste of Blink-182 out of your mouth. Um, 
<laughs> or out of your ears, um, uh, is a boiler room set of Air, uh, which is a French uh, kind of jazz duo. Probably funk. from about as far back, if not further back, than Blink-182. Yeah, probably the same era, but... When was, yeah, Mo- I guess when was Moon Safari? Moon Safari was mid-90s, for yeah, sure. I think it was 98, Moon Safari. But anyway, most of this set they play is Moon Safari. But it's a... I, I'm, I like it. Yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a, of a live set. If you have any work to do on the computer, you should pop this and... Although it was very t- that album was was slightly tainted for me because I've always quite liked it, but I remember listening to a female DJ. Uh, a, uh, this is a while back, um, but saying that you you knew you're on risky ground when you went round to a guy's house and that record went on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I so, I know what you're talking about. So I've now and always felt a bit awkward. It back to the uh, you know I've, when you hear it. <laughs> I've always felt a bit awkward putting that album on. Um, well, what do you got for us? I'm going to follow the theme of Smarter Every Day's YouTube channel. I, I'm a subscriber. Okay, so good. good. I, I, there are no complaints there. Well, this is the two vortexes colliding episode. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, irrespective of all the wonderful science that goes on within it, it's a very beautiful thing that they create. Mm-hmm. Yep. Great I agree. program. Um, so I'm going to give you two edits as well. well. Actually, I'm going to give you an edit and an article that contains various edits. Three um, podcasters, five edits. This is good. This is a good this one is to strong. watch. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we're going to be away for a little while. Uh, so the first one is the uh, a little edit of uh, a whole bunch of longboarders at the Wave Ranch recently. I guess a practice event for the uh, for this demo that they're going to do during the, the main event. Really, really cool. I'd not really seen anyone longboarding properly at the mm-hmm. at, at the pool. And this is some really, really beautiful longboarding stuff. So um, that's well worth watching. It was crazy seeing Jared Mel with a leash on. Yeah. I've never seen any footage of him, uh, regardless of wave size, with a leash on. Yeah, but having been there, I understand why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second is Surfline did a, a, a pretty fun little uh, article that gave Josh Kerr and Tyler Warren and a whole bunch of different twin fin surfboards and sent them off on a trip and... Gave their feedback on the on the boards. I really enjoyed it. The, the only thing that kind of was a well, there were two things that bummed me out a little bit. One was I thought there was a, there was a huge variation in the size of the boards. Like some of them were like twenty four liters, and some of them were thirty five, thirty six liters. So there was quite yeah. a big variation between the boards to be comparing them. Uh, and then the other was I thought that Josh Kerr's feedback was really, really good on the boards. Like when, when he was talking about how the board felt and how it rode, mm-hmm. I thought it was being really analytical. I thought, oh, well, Tyler Warren's going to be great because he's a shaper and a surfer and this is his sort of equipment. Mm-hmm. And I th- just didn't really take anything useful away from what he was saying. It's funny, yeah, because Tyler's one of the most gifted shapers of our generation. And yeah, his, his feedback was much lighter than you would have expected. Yeah. Um, but anyway... Some really cool, uh, some really cool little edits within that main article. Uh, I can't link the videos because it's Surfline one, and they've protected all the videos on their own format. Uh, but I will put links into the show notes so you can mm-hmm. go and check that out. And if anyone, I'm assuming, given the amount that we have spoken about twin fins in the last twelve months, I'm assuming that there are a few twin fin fans in our listeners. So go and check this article out because it's a good one. I was about to say, um, you definitely would recognize how small the surf has been this summer from our. Uh, tendency to talk about twin fins and longboards. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, I get barreled <laughs> enough over the next couple months that we are talking about pintails 
and step ups <laughs> for the next couple episodes. For the next couple episodes, possibly. Alrighty, listeners, uh, that is all for now. From all of us here, goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Surf Simply.